Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Welcome, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we're going to explore some new dimensions in healing. My guest is Dr. William Bankston, who is a professor of sociology at St. Joseph's College in New York. He is author of The Energy Cure, Chasing the Cure, and Hands-On Healing. He has recently retired as President of the Society for Scientific Exploration, and he held that position for some 12 years. Bill is based in New York, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Bill. It's such a pleasure to be with you once again. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the invitation. You've been engaged in healing research now for decades, and I suppose it's fair to say that's a bit of an odd line of research for a professor of sociology, uh, and, and as I understand, a, a specialist in statistics as well. Can, can you tell me how you began your healing practice? Yeah, it was it was kind of an aberration, uh, you know, unexplained or un, un, unanticipated, not planned, no goals in mind, nothing like that. Uh, I was actually, you know, the, the, the very short version is uh, uh, many, many, many years ago, a long, long time ago, in a, I guess, a place far, far away, um, I was lifeguarding and I ran into somebody at the pool who alleged to be able to do things psychic. And I thought, well, this is interesting. Let's let's go meet this gentleman and, and see what, what a psychic is like. I, I didn't know any psychics. And uh, I started to test him. He was at the time doing psychometry, token object reading. And I started to give him stuff to read. And uh, I couldn't make it go away. I couldn't stop it. I couldn't design a study that would in any way diminish what he was doing. Uh, it was extraordinary. Uh, the level of specificity he would do in a reading would just knock your socks off. Um, and, and no matter what, and I dragged him to the ASPR, for example, the American Society for Psychical Research in the city, and I, I, I introduced him to Carliosis, I introduced him to Stan Kribner, I introduced him, you know, all around, went to Maimonides Hospital, trying to figure out a way to make this guy's effect go away. Didn't go away. Uh, and he spontaneously turned into, I guess, an inadvertent healer. Uh, he started to, in his readings, when he would do a reading on someone, and let's say he's holding, you know, whatever the, the token object is he was holding, he started to get physical symptoms on himself that alleged to be mirrored in the person. And the person alleged, not, he wouldn't, the person wouldn't even be present, the person would allege that at a particular time, the symptoms, the pain, the discomfort, the whatever it might be, went away. And so this guy thought, this is crazy. You know, I'm not a healer. I, I, I'm not even trying to heal. I'm just holding stuff and doing things, and people are alleging to have healings go on. And I thought to myself, well, here, here, here's something that's reasonably interesting and also testable. Um, and uh, I needed help at the time, too. Uh, I had to give up a swimming scholarship in college. 
I was a butterflyer and the back wouldn't arch after 100 meters. <laughs> and that was good for a butterflyer. Uh, so I was a reasonably good swimmer, but I was just losing the ability to keep going. So I was in discomfort, as many people are with lower back pains and things like that. And I said to him, uh, come over, put your hands on my back. And he said, then what? And I said, I don't know, fix me. And so he put his hands on the back, said, all right, here we go. And I felt a heat. I felt like my back was being Novocaine. And the Novocaine sensation gradually went away over the course of the next, I'll make up half hour, gradually went away from the outside in. And I haven't had a pain since. And it was, it was startling. So I not, I don't default to belief. This guy had never tried this ever. I was in pain for years. Pain went away, didn't come back. So my question is, what do you do with that? You know, it's not an abstract idea. You know, it's not like you coming along and telling me a story and I go, ooh, ah. When it happens to you, it's visceral. And, and it, it really does get your attention. So I started to drag this guy around and put hands on people and put hands on this and put hands on that. And here's a sick person and here's a person with this condition. And I watched as dozens and dozens of people came through, him putting his hands on. And I miracles didn't happen, but healing started to occur. And there were patterns. It wasn't everything would happen and everything would be wonderful. It wasn't everything would be fixed. It was some things responded faster than others. Pain went away pretty quick. Malignant tumors went away pretty quick. Benign tumors didn't go away at all. And so there was a pattern here that was discoverable, so to speak. And I, so I watched and then actually started to play around with him. I mean, he was making the stuff up as he went along. I started to make up the stuff up as I went along. And the two of us are making stuff up as we go along. And we start putting our hands on people. Person after person would start to come. And I watched or participated in several hundred healings, looking to see if I can figure out what's the underlying trend. What does it work on? What does it not work on? You know, does belief matter? Does distance matter? Does all of those kinds of things. Well, you mentioned that you went to the ASPR. You met with Carlos Osis there. You met with Stanley Krippner. Obviously, uh, this must be back in the 1960s or early 70s. 70s, early 70s. Very early seven. Chuck Otterton was there, you know, the whole thing. Yeah, I remember those years. So uh, it means that you've been at this for 50 years. Did you have a prior interest in parapsychology that you even knew where to go? I had read some things, uh, just t- getting stuff out of a library, out of, you know, a layman's version of it. Uh, and, and so I, I had read about, you know, stories and these psychics and these intuitives and these and these. And it was interesting to me, but I did, I, I didn't have anything I could grab onto. Uh, and I, so I started to read it. And what actually the, the, the real synchronicity and the, the coincidence in time was I met this guy at the pool right after I spontaneously took a course with Douglas Dean in parapsychology because I wanted to see what's going on. And he and he's the guy who introduced me to the work of the late, great Bernard Grad. And so, you know, in telling stories, and this is cute, and, you know, I heal the sick, I raise the dead, yada, 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 you go on and on and on. And then when I finally ran into the work, the healing studies of the pioneering 
Bernard Grad, I mean, it really riveted me. It got my attention. So Grad is, uh, hopefully, many of the people listening to this will, will know, and if they're not, they should look them up. Uh, plant growth experiments, wound healing experiments, uh, all sorts of, he, he pioneered the field of healing research. I, I just consider him the great grad. Here's where I was though. So I just learned about this stuff and I had no means to test it. And I ran into this guy and I started testing him. And that's when the two things came together. I knew Douglas Dean and I knew Bernard Grad uh, as as well. In fact, I remember Douglas Dean telling me that until they saw Bernard Grad's research, he himself didn't accept psychic healing, and and pretty much the rest of the parapsychology community uh, ignored it and and thought it was basically um, the power of positive thinking or his yeah. suggestion but they or spiritual something or other. They didn't think that it uh, was related to uh, psychokinesis or uh, telepathy or anything that they were researching. Yeah, yeah. And so, the, it, it, like others, apparently, the great grad riveted me, but I had no, I had no outlet. So it wasn't like I, I read his stuff and then I designed some experiments. You know, I ran into the healer and the healer healed me. You know, and then the question is, what happened to me? You know, what I know with confidence, I didn't go into this as a believer. I know with confidence, I didn't go into this with practical experience. I did know a little bit about the research, but most of the stuff I had read with the exception of the things uh, Douglas uh, uh, introduced me to, you know, they were just popular kinds of books that you could take and leave, accept or not accept. Grad stuff, you didn't have to accept or not accept. You could look at the methods. Uh, and that appealed to me, you know, just as an orientation. So when this guy came into my life, you know, some months later, um, it kind of let's marry the two worlds and see see where this goes. And after I watched a few hundred healings, I didn't know what to do because uh, anyone who's familiar with clinical work, it's hard. It's hard to unravel. It's hard to put your finger on it and say, this is the cause or this is the stimulus or this is whatever it might be. You got a patient who comes in, you do a healing of whatever stripe and the patient goes out and healing begins or the patient is healed or something like that goes on. Well, you know, was it positive thinking? Was it time itself and the person would have gotten better? I mean, I know the skeptical arguments. Uh, so maybe it was the grapefruit. Uh, maybe I skipped the grapefruit. Maybe it was the multivitamin I took. Maybe I, I finally got some exercise. Who knows? And so this, this started to frustrate me, even as I was watching healing after healing after healing. And that's when a friend of mine, Dave Prinsley, and I, which we met at this guy's house, uh, we said, we got to take this into the lab and really try to control it. And as you say, 50 years later, <laughs> half century goes by pretty quick, and I'm still at it. I have no learning curve. Well, Bernard Grad was a biologist, and yeah. uh, I, I'm guessing back in those early years, you, you were not yet a professor of sociology. I was a lifeguard. <laughs> With, with unending curiosity, which has not diminished in any way. The work that you're doing is very much in the vein of, of, of grad working with mice, for example. That seems to be your specialty. Yeah, yeah. I've done uh, 
And yeah, grad is the stimulus for almost all of it. Uh, but I, I've, I've done, uh, at this point, I just finished my 19th and 20th mouse experiment at Tokyo University. I've done uh, my experiments all over the world uh, and in, in the States and I think six different medical schools, you know, and on and on and on. So I do conventional kind of research on an unconventional topic uh, using conventional methods. Uh, and grad being my, I guess, the guy who tuned me into all this, uh, he, he, he's the guy who, you know, is, is drove me hard too, because we became very good friends and drove me into extreme rigor of uh, methods. The interesting thing and what distinguishes you from grad is that you're not just a researcher, you are a practitioner. And at some point you made that transition. You never originally thought of yourself as someone who, who could do healing. No, I, I don't think of myself as a healer, but I can heal. You know, it's, 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 I mean, the way I think of it, and I'm not trying to be facetious, is it's just healing. You know, uh, it's, it's, what, what's interesting to me is what happens when you apply healing, it's not that healing happens. I mean, it, it, if anyone thinks, you know, healing is positive thinking, they're just not familiar with what's gone on in the last bunch of decades. Uh, I, 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 for example, as you point out, I've, I've spent a lot of time on mice. I've spent a lot of time doing in vitro studies. Uh, I've specialized on cancer. Because it seemed clinically that it's it's something that responds very dramatically to the healing, uh, and it's uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of li literature, a lot of data on cancer. And what I do is I I, I think in simple terms. I'm not an oncologist. Um, if we have a mouse model, and the mouse model has has been studied, and we know what's going to happen when you inject these mice with a certain amount of cancer cells. This is a good thing in my world because we know what's going to happen. We're not saying, eh, I didn't feel good. Now I feel good. Uh, they, they, you can measure all sorts of stuff and you can and do this very precisely. So I first started out on a, a mammary cancer. I didn't pick it out. It was done in a conventional uh, biology lab at, at City University of New York. And the particular mammary cancer was chosen because it's so widely studied. And there is about 2,000, that's a literal number, about 2,000 published peer-reviewed studies on this particular cancer. Every oncologist knows when you talk about, you know, you give the technical ease to it, every oncologist knows about this model because it's there's nothing that's been studied as much. <clears throat> and so we know what happens. You inject the, can the, inject the cancer into the mouse. It's ugly research. 100% of the mice are dead in a, in a month. 100%. No matter what you do, give them chemotherapy, give them radiation, feed them, starve them, whatever, they're all dead in a month. That's beautiful to me because now I can interject a single variable. We know what's going to happen. There's no question what's going to happen. We can show it's going to happen before it happens. We come in and we do hands-on healing or hands-around healing or healing by intent or we do it from a distance and the cancer gets cured. That's not a statistical problem anymore. If you have 100% death and then you have 100% cured, <laughs> we don't need to do statistics. 
Well, as a sociologist, I imagine that it's of some interest to you as to how this very definitive research is being accepted by the scientific community at large. Oh, big time. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's extraordinarily interesting. Uh, one of the areas that I have studied quite a bit is, is something called the sociology of science and the sociology of knowledge. And so I was a little bit prepared, not entirely prepared, but I was a little bit prepared for the vehemence by which people attack you. And I mean attack. Sometimes there's malice behind it, and sometimes there's confusion. So, for example, I've done, you know, as I say, a lot of work on cancer, a lot of experiments in vitro, in vivo, all those kinds of things, and I got hundreds of clinical cases. I've spoken at medical schools, I've spoken in departments of oncology to 75 oncologists at one time. And they'll fill an auditorium and actually they'll go out into the wings. And it, it, it's interesting because it's a, it's a subject that will draw people in. Even if they come in to say, you're crazy. You know, do you believe this crap? You know, you, you, know, you get those kinds of questions. And I get the oncologists to come in and they spend about three hours. Uh, the, I do a presentation, here's the data. Here's eight by 10 color glossy pictures. Here's what happens to the mice. Here's what happens to the, here's the setup. Here's the lab. Here's whatever it may be. And they, they're not sure what to do. So they spend a couple hours trying to, to knock my knees out. And that's fine. You know, that's, I consider that, I don't take that personally. That's scientific discourse. But then you get to the end and I generally get, I don't mean this to brag. I generally get a pretty sustained standing ovation. And they'll come up to me and go, Beautiful. I can't find a flaw. My question is, would you like to play? And playing could be one of two things. Come into the lab. Playing could be, let's do a clinical trial. Nope. 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 I'm busy. I'm, 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 that was fascinating. I'm busy. I... I and in this particular case, you know, you get the, the, the attacking was, isn't personal. The attacking is left with, I don't know what to do next. And I can contrast that with skeptic societies. So I've spoken at a number of skeptic societies, you know, the such and such skeptic societies and the skeptic societies. I like to, I like, it's kind of fun for me. It's just kind of interesting to watch people's response because the skeptic societies, for the most part, are not made up of skeptics. The skeptic societies are made up of believers. But what they believe is that it's all crap. And they already know it's all crap. And they know there's no such thing as healing. And so I walk into a room and they're all sitting, you know, like this in a pretzel. And I usually begin by insulting them because it's, it's one of my superpowers. Uh, and, and so I begin by insulting them and I say, before I begin, by the way, I'm the only skeptic in the room. And then that, that drives them crazy. You know, then they try to pretzel their feet and their legs and their arms and no, we're the such and such skeptic side. I said, you're really not skeptics. You're a bunch of mindless believers. Believers come in various flavors. I can believe everything is true, and it doesn't make any difference what the evidence is. I can believe everything is true. I can believe everything is false. 
just polar opposites of belief. A skeptic, and I consider myself to be a skeptic, after 50 years. <laughs> so I consider myself to be a skeptic. I don't know enough to be a believer. I know healing happens. I know distance doesn't matter. I have some measurements of what happens in the room of healing. I have some measurements of what happens to the healer. I have some measurements of what happens to the healee. But in the grand scheme of things, I don't, I can't, I can't make sense out of healing. It, I, it's, there are patterns and they're reliable, but I don't understand it because I'm traditionally trained. And the, my pea brain working on a problem and really taking in all the healing data, I don't know what to do. So I, 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 I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't believe that the next time it's going to work because I don't know enough about the mechanism. So I remain a skeptic, and I don't find that many skeptics out there. At the same time, as I understand it, Bill, you trained, I, I don't know how many people, certainly hundreds, you, you have a book out about it, uh, offering instructions to people. Yeah, and I, I also have a skeptical article in, I forget the journal, I think it was Alternative and Complementary Medicine, uh, but... It, asking the question, can healing be taught? And I'm asking the question even after having taught people. Because it occurred to me, you know, uh, 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 when I first started publishing in this area, it, uh, I thought mistakenly that I had demonstrated healing can be taught because I take naive, inexperienced people, non-believers, skeptics, teach them my healing method, Give them a cage of cancerous mice, slightly simplifying it, and they'd cure the mice. And I thought to myself, wow, skeptics can heal. I don't know if believers can heal, but skeptic, I'm a skeptic. I can heal. And I can, I can pick people off the street. I can ask them, do you believe in this, this stuff? And they'll go, no. Are you open to it? I don't know. I don't know anything about it. I go, perfect. You're my guy. <laughs> Come in here and do exactly what I tell you to do, and I'm going to give you cages of mice. They can do it, but I asked the question, did I really, when I finally published this article, I, I asked the question, did I really show healing can be taught? And it turns out I didn't because I don't have any pre-post-test. So the skeptic comes into my lab. I teach them healing. I give them stuff to heal. They heal. Was it me? Was it the techniques? Is something else going on? Could they have healed anyway? I don't know anybody who knows the answer to that. Yeah. And I can heal and I can get you to heal. I don't know if I can get believers to heal because they have a tendency to want to not focus on what the task is at hand. They have a tendency to want to reinforce their own beliefs. And when I generate a hypothesis in my tests, I always generate hypotheses to see if I know what I'm talking about. And it turns out I don't know what I'm talking about because most, almost all of my hypotheses are not confirmed. Yet healing happens. Now, there are many other uh, studies of, of healers using methods other than your own. And to the best of my understanding, they get mixed results. Uh, some of them are very successful, some are not. Whereas if 
correct me if I'm wrong, I'm under the impression that the many, many studies you've done have been consistently successful. They've been consistently successful with cancer. Uh, so, you know, I've done mammary cancers, I've done sarcomas, I've done oncogenic mice, I've done bladder cancers, I've done melanomas, I've done, you know, and I keep going. Uh, so I have, a, I have a lot of experiments on a lot of different stuff. I would say there's, uh, yeah, the, the, the influence of healing on all of those is interesting, but even same healer, same method, you're going to get variation in the outcome, even if it all ends up being cured. So I'll give you an example. And this is an actual, not case, but it's an illustration. One student, and I've taught students, skeptics, and I've taught faculty skeptics to do this. You know, they say, what do you do? You do your nutty healing stuff? I say, beautiful. Come do it yourself. I don't believe this stuff. Beautiful. Come do it yourself. <laughs> Then they don't know what to do when that, when everything gets healed. Um, uh, but it, when, when, when you do the, 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 the skeptical thing and you do it repeated, 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 what do you do then? I've, I've now passed along the same problem I ran into. When I was healed, do I walk away? Do I try to figure out what this is about? And going to your question from way back, students are the same. Having been taught to heal doesn't mean you welcome it. Faculty are the same. Because you've been taught to heal and they don't believe it. They, some, sometimes I've been accused of switching my son. It's not possible. Do it again. I'll pay closer attention. I'll have guards at the door. Happens again. They don't know what to do. They run away. But you get people to do this, you still get varied response. So a real case a student, two mice in the cage, mammary cancer. The mice are essentially clones of one another. I mean, for all practical purposes, they are. They're not literally, but for all practical purposes. They're clones of one another. They've been given cancer, the same amount of cancer on the same day, and they're living in the same cage, and they've lived with each other for the rest of the, for their entire life, and now they're in a cage by a student volunteer who's got her hands around the sides of the cage. One mouse will take X number of days to be cured. One mouse will take two and a half X. Now, how do you explain that monstrous variation in response of the HLE? We're not going to blame it on the belief of the mice. We're not going to blame it on a placebo. We're not going to blame it on, but you, you see the problem. There's what we statisticians call unexplained variance, which is code for, hell, I don't know. <laughs> And the hell I don't know can come in various flavors. One, it can be within a group, the unexplained variants. It can be why does one healer get different results on a particular condition than another? And the answer is pretty simple. I don't know. So I can't explain the in, intra-group variants, and I can't explain why healer A is really good at this but not so good at that. And as you point out, there's a bunch of methods of healing. They seem to have divergent outcomes, even if they have variability within the groups. And I think this is a ripe area for, for research. I don't know enough about healing and healers, but there are people who've been trained in, you know, A, B, C, and D techniques 
wouldn't it be really interesting to find out how A, B, C, and D techniques in the aggregate, central tendency, how they how they vary? That would be a beautiful thing to know. And if you're a card carrying clinician, you know you're you're a healer, and you're out there, you shouldn't just know my stuff because my stuff stinks on some stuff, and it's very good with other stuff, even as there's variation in response. So benign growths, we stink at. Malignancies, we don't stink at. I've, I'm told, but I, you know, I don't, I'm not a healer. I'm told that there are other methods. They're good at this and they stink at that. I'm good at that and I stink at this. You know, that, that, that kind of, kind of thing. Boy, is that interesting. When you lump healing together and you believe in healing. No, I don't believe in healing. I mean, what, what kind of a question is that? Healing happens, and it happens differentially. Let's find out what's going on. I want to go back to some terms you've mentioned, because I'm sure uh, some of our viewers, in fact, I'm a little puzzled myself about the distinction between in vivo and in vitro research. Mm-hmm. In vivo, and it may be misapplied, but it's how it's commonly used. In vivo means in a body. Uh, so if I have a mouse body and I'm doing something on a mouse body, I'm experimenting in vivo. If I have cell cultures uh, and there's no host, there's cell cultures in a Petri dish, not really, but a cell culture in a, in a Petri dish, that's in vitro. Uh, and there, there are biologists, frankly, who, who disregard that distinction because they say, a cell is a cell. What's why isn't that its body? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but in the common parlance, if you're doing cell studies, you're doing things along those lines. You're doing in vitro. If you're doing living organisms that are independent, uh, then you're doing in vivo. Well, what you've basically been sharing with me up until now is that you, after decades of research, still feel very much. Uh, without a clue as to what is the process or mechanism behind the healing. But uh, but there's another way to look at it, which is from a pragmatic point of view, which is yeah. how can how can this be a benefit to uh, the greatest oh, sure. number of people? Yeah. So when I, when I say I don't have a clue, it it doesn't mean I don't have a reasonably predictive guess meeting someone, knowing the outcome. And whether it's going to take or not, but even if someone gets better, and I depend, and I'm dismissing the time frame. Someone gets better, it doesn't mean I understand, you know, really what the mechanism is. And I would say that that that's sometimes pointed out as a flaw or a limitation in healing research, and I think that's crazy talk because there's this is the case in. Almost any clinical application, you know, so you take, I mean, you can get a really basic stuff. Uh, you want to drive a biologist, uh, to drink or to run out, out, out of the house screaming. You, you, you take your hand and you scrape off some cells. So I'm scraping off skin cells and they're dropping presumably to the floor. And so I'm now missing some, some skin cells. Well, what happens? Well, if you ask a biologist, they'll say, this was upregulated, that was downregulated, this goes on, then that goes on, and that goes on, and then the, the cells grow back, and then it stops growing when you replace the cells you drop. And I look at them and I say, that doesn't explain it at all. 
What started the mechanism? What started the reboot? How does this, how does the hand know to stop making kin, uh, skin cells? What's the brain power behind this? And they'll run out of the room screaming. We don't, we don't study that. We don't, we just look at the steps and stages of this. Well, I can do steps and stages of healing. I can show you mice pictures and show you an ugly looking mouse with an ulceration coming out of its side. And I can tell you this mouse is cured. When you, when you look in the histology of this, the cancer is gone. And when you look back on it in a couple of weeks, it's going to look like a normal mouse, which never had cancer. That's like saying I scraped the skin cells off and they came back and they stopped. How does that work? I don't know. I don't know anybody who knows. How does the healing of the cancer in the mice work? I don't know. I don't know anybody who knows. And healing takes on this vague turn and then you're safe. But really, if you get down to it, I don't know anybody who understands how this works. But you're exactly right. It does not prohibit use. If we had medical procedures limited to that for which we understood the mechanism, medicine is almost gone. If we require that you understand first and heal later, <laughs> healing is gone. Heal first and play. And then you got it. You got something that's going on. So yeah, I can talk in general terms and I can say, well, in my technique, we're better at taking things away, which you don't want, than we are stimulating things which are missing. It's a general tendency. It's not an ironclad rule. It's not a law. So we're not good at things like Parkinson's. In Parkinson's, you got a problem in the brain. It's not putting out stuff that it wants to put out. Can we stimulate the brain to put out the stuff it needs to make the Parkinson's go away? So far, no. If you have a wart, and this sounds facetious, but I really mean it, a wart, it's a standing joke of mine, but it's real. We don't affect warts. And people come along and say, any idiot can fix a wart. And I go, not this idiot. Well, you, you go up to a wart and you go, boo, and it goes away. Yeah, okay, I go, boo, and it laughs at me. You treat a wart, put your hands around a wart and say, go away, and it goes away. It doesn't if I do it. And the interesting thing is that the people who learn my method lose the ability to do warts. Now, that's interesting. Now, then they cheat. And they use another method. You know, they go, Reiki, you know, and Reiki gets rid of warts, I'm told. Mine doesn't. That's a clue. I'm just not smart enough to figure it out yet. It strikes me that maybe one of the problems of trying to analyze this scientifically is that science is based on a premise that the universe operates according to mechanistic principles. And this might not operate that way at all. Oh, I, and, I, and I think it's likely that it doesn't. Uh, what is interesting, though, is that you can see stages, patterns, and I know it's, if I know, if I can see this as stage two, I pretty much know what's going to happen in stage three. But I don't really understand the mechanism. I don't understand the driving force. I don't, I, I don't understand it. And it may not be there. And we may be asking the wrong questions. And so an unencumbered person who isn't burdened by, well, for example, stuff I know, 
can think in a way that I don't, I, you know, I'm stuck. I've been at this a long time and we can say, get rid of this, get rid of that, get rid of the other, get rid of the mechanistic kind of thinking. And I'm sympathetic to all of that because the mechanistic thinking hasn't yielded a great answer. But it turns out, you're right, the faith of scientists is that you'll, if it's real, you'll be able to understand it and you'll be able to find it. And they won't take you seriously until you have it, even if they don't have it. So gravity, how does gravity work? Well, it depends who you talk to. Curved space, gravitons, the Earth sucks. <laughs> yeah. there's, all, there's all sorts of possibilities, but there's gravity. Same thing with healing. There's all sorts of possibilities, but there's healing. You know, the, the, someone who says, I don't believe in that stuff. Well, you just don't know what you're saying. I gather that uh, amongst the people who you've trained and, and maybe yourself occasionally, you don't just limit the work to uh, mice or uh, cellular cultures, but uh, your students, for example, are probably called on to heal living yeah. human beings. Oh, yeah, yeah. So if I get requests for clinical healings now, and I get a bunch, you might imagine, I got a, I got a list of people I've trained who they, they haven't been pulled in just to do my experiments. They actually were healers, and now they're doing different things using my methods than they could do before. And they're out, you know, this is, this is their day job. Uh, so I have a, a battery of folks who, uh, who's, thing is their day job and they clinically exist as healers and that's how they make their living. You know, I don't, uh, but, uh, but they do. And, and what I'm doing is right now is I'm, I'm focused on trying to make this stuff exactly as you said, even if we don't understand it, doesn't mean it's not real. Even if we don't understand it, can we make it clinically useful? And to make it clinically useful, you have to make it more amenable to conventional thinking, in order to make it more amenable to conventional the uh, thinking, you got to do two things, as far as I'm concerned. You have to be able to store healing, and you need to be able to scale it. If you can store but can't scale, it's never going to be conventional. If you can scale but not store, it, it's, there's no way to make this widely available. So I've, I've done a whole boatload of experiments in the last three, four years on the storage of healing. And some of it goes back to the great grad. So I have, for example, uh, I mean, Jeff, you know, you know, well, grad's pioneering work on, on cotton. Well, I play a lot with cotton and grad was onto something. I've, you know, taken it a little farther than he did, but same plot. And so we hold pieces of cotton and we do the healing technique and we do all this kind of shtick. Um, and then I take cancer cells in a dish. This is actually a mouse. <laughs> I can't get away from mice. So we, we take ca cancer cells in a dish and we put them on top of treated cotton. And the cells genomically change. And then we put the cells on top of untreated cotton nothing happens. So in a way, we know there's some information in the cotton that stays in the cotton, because we do this over time, 
and it can be recognized by life forms in need. Cancer cells can tell when something's been charged. All sorts of stuff can tell when something's been charged. Or this also goes back to the great grad, water. So I've done experiments treating water. I mean, it's about as exotic as this. And this is about how exciting healing is. <laughs> it's actually incredibly boring. Uh, so you sit there with a with a, a piece of cotton or a bunch of water and you treat it and then you feed the, the water to cancerous mice who are going to die. Those mice get cured. That shows storability, but that doesn't show scalability. So if we want to make this conventional, it has to be stored in something. And we've done water, we've done cotton, we've done cell medium, we've stored it in mice themselves, we've stored it in blood. We've stored, I mean, we, I got a bunch of experiments that healing is storable. I don't know the range, the full range where it, it's not storable in this, but it is. But we've done organic material, inorganic material, alive material, dead material, you know, on and on. Scalability goes to whether we could mass produce it. So cotton stores it, but how do you get a boatload of cotton? Can cotton charge cotton? That's a scalability problem. If I take, and I have water, and I put some water in other water, does that other water become potentized? Does it become informed with healing? Does it, that's, that's, that's a question of scalability. So I've done a bunch of experiments looking at, I, I did it first, looking at maximally scalable delivery systems. And what that am amounted to was a recording system. So an elaborate recording system done in a Faraday cage with 38 different kinds of detectors. And the reason for the 38 is because we don't know what we're doing. So we threw the kitchen sink at it through 38 detectors, investigating this, that, the other thing, all run through a supercomputer and reduced to a, a wave file. What happens if you play that wave file to cancer cells? And it turns out this is really interesting. The cancer cells respond to the healing recording. So inside the Faraday cage are three people. I was one of them and two other people who practiced this method. So the three of us are in a Faraday cage, holding a piece of cotton, charging the cotton, because we know it, we're doing something to the cotton. What happens if we record this stuff? Well, the recording played back, this is done seven times at Brown University, played into a, a incubator in which cancer cells are growing. We looked at 167 genes, for a genomic response. When the recordings start, 68 genes, 68 reliably change. So this is upregulated, that's downregulated. This We have a real biological effect on cancer cells. Now they don't believe as far as I know. <laughs> and so I've demonstrated that a healing technology is possible, which means we have a system that I can articulate you can work on it, I can work on it, we can try to make it better. So we've captured something. We've played this to mice, the recording. Really seriously interesting things happen to the mice. I don't think we've reproduced the hands-on 
The recording doesn't do everything that hands-on will do, but it's in the neighborhood. So I'm thinking of it like we built the Model T, you know, and we if we compare that to a Tesla, it looks pretty crude. My exotic recording is like the Model T. How do we make it Tesla? If I can make it Tesla and I can really reproduce through recordings or some media the effect of the hands-on or the effect of the treatment, the recording is instantly scalable to the entire planet. That would be interesting. That would be really, really... The entire planet could use some healing. And then you, no matter where you are, I don't care where you are, you're in some remote part of Sri Lanka, I don't care. You're in uh, Siberia, you're in Alberta, you're in wherever you are. I don't want to have this. Let me download the cure. That would be kind of fun. So somehow you're able to transmit or, or, or transmute the healing process into an audio signal. Yes, but we've lost something. And we don't know right now whether that's because it's a digital signal and the digitization loses information. We don't know whether we have the wrong detectors. We don't know whether, you know, but so far when we take it into the lab in Providence and we do hands-on on a, on a in vitro cell lines of cancer, you get an immediate genomic responses. It takes a little longer with the recording. And it is a very rough estimate. It takes about four times as long with the recording to produce what the hands-on will do. And even then, I don't think it's getting the whole signal. So whether it's a signal or ought to be a signal or we're asking the question in the right way, I don't know. But it's it becomes a technological problem, not idiosyncratic to me, but rather that anybody can work on. So had we time, I can also show you data. We've gone into ordinary sound studios and opened up the channels completely, you know, wide open and, and do maximum kinds of recording. And we play that recording, we get seriously interesting results. So again, a technology of healing recording and then global scalability is potentially there. Now we've also taken and worked with water, again, going back to the great grad, I did the water experiments on cancerous mice at Yukon Medical School, and that cured the mice, but that doesn't mean it's scalable. So we have special water, potentized, whatever your term is. How do we make it like the recording scalable? And we've been playing around with different ways, including using homeopathic methods. I'm not a homeopath, but homeopathic methods of dilution and succussion. So I'm taking water and diluting water with water. I mean, it's crazy. And I'm succussing the thing and pounding it and then diluting more and doing this and doing that. And then we take it into the lab and we say, and I got to tell you, I think the water may be a better medium for storage. And it may be a better medium to be potentized. We're getting reactions from experiments as well as clinical application. If we take the water, treat the water, dilute and succuss the water, and do this and that and the other thing to it, it actually seems like it's getting stronger. So for example, just an anecdote. Water that's gone through our process, and again, it's published, water that's gone through our process 
has been given to a whole bunch. I've done uh, three clinical studies uh, of 100 people each, two in the States, one in Europe. We're getting results we don't even get with hands-on. So one, an N of one, you know, don't, don't spend too much time worrying about this. We, have a, we had a guy who was in a wheelchair with Parkinson's who took our, and these are sublingual drops that we take, two drops under the tongue, four times a day. You got to volunteer to do this for eight weeks and we see what happens to you biologically. Guy threw out his wheelchair and his walker and he's walking a mile at a time. He's been in a wheelchair for five years. Now that's crazy. The cotton wouldn't do that because we've tried it. The hands-on haven't done it. But the specially treated water that we can mass produce now seems to do it. So it's the same question, a recording, instantly scalable. And then really, you know, you ask, who would accept it? You know, who would accept it? It's an interesting question. What would you do? So I'll give you a quick anecdote now because I just got some data in the last couple of weeks on a clinical trial I did on COVID patients. So I have 300 COVID, 300 people about to go into a hospital with COVID. They've been diagnosed, they're tested, they're this, they're that, and they're going into a hospital. They're not in good shape. We got measurements of their symptoms. We got, we got, we got. And we give them this specially treated water, two different kinds of water. One is an antiviral unorthodox and one is a pro-health unorthodox. And they put, they take a couple of drops under the tongue. The results are astonishing. I mean, they're, they're way past astonishing. So I'll give you a quick illustration. One of the things we mentioned was general health on a scale of one to 10. You know, 10 means I'm in perfect. One means I'm about to die. We got the pretest, of course. They're coming in on day one into the COVID hospital. The average general level of health is slightly under 1.8. A week later, it's only a tenth of a point higher. So these are not folks getting better quickly. If you've taken the drops under the tongue, day one, you're also, you're not in good shape. On day seven, you're at nine. The aches are gone. The pain is gone. The fever's gone. The everything is gone. Over the course of a week. Now, this is done, and I just wrote up a 41-page report with all sorts of geeky technical things and tables and stuff like that. I got regression equations in there. I mean, you know, I'm a little crazy. I got 41 pages of technical data. It's astonishing. And you stand back and you look at this and you go, but they just had water. Now, interesting anecdote, the doctors who were administering this, a bunch of them scooped up the bottles when they saw what was happening, even though this thing was double blind. They said, something's happening when people take this, these bottles. And they took them home, they stole them, so they could give them to their private patients. <laughs> so I have clinical data. I got anecdotal data, certainly. I have hundreds of other people we've given these drops to. And now we have something that I'll say, interestingly, 
treats COVID. COVID's been in the news once or twice. I can mass produce this stuff. You're the first person I'm telling. What would you do with this? And now we've come full circle to what happens when you when you do hands-on. Well, now I'm going to say there's no hands-on. So this hocus-pocus is gone, and now I'm to this hocus-pocus, but now it's been reduced to an eyedropper. And the eyedropper just gives you a couple of drops under the tongue that you take four times a day. It's going away. It's going to go away. You mentioned, Bill, that there were two different kinds of water. I remember the impression from what you said, they were charged differently. That I'm assuming that means the intention of the healer in charging the water uh, was different each time. No, the, the intention's not, not different at all. The method and the stuff that we're doing and putting through the, the dilution and succussion and such, it's different kinds of stuff. We've taken just treated water, and the treated water gone through the dilution, succussion, which we've automated, and put through a, a device that, you know, it's a gizmo that outcomes essentially unlimited amounts of water that you want. If you if you do a chemical test, it's just water. If we do this and we apply it with a different dilution and succussion, same base mother tincture, if you will, the same base, it can be used for other stuff. So we have something called that we call perform, which athletes are using. And so I'm testing this clinically. It's the, it's the craziest thing. So weightlifters, for example, are taking drops under the tongue of essentially the same water that we use on COVID with a different dilution and succussion. And they're weightlifting and they're breaking their own record by 40 pounds. Marathoners are, are, they're, they're recovering quick. Oh, that's why we call it recover. They're, they're, you know, right away they're, they're performing. We've got, the antiviral actually started as a untraditional formulation that came out of Beech Tree Labs, an antiviral, a very low dose of something that we said, what happens if we take our, the, the Beech Tree antiviral and we put it through our process of dilution and succussion so there's no molecules left and put it through the gizmo, but it's been treated that seems to get rid of the virus. It'll also get rid of any flu. Now, understand what I'm saying here. And I'm saying it as a skeptic. It'll get rid of any flu. It'll get rid of COVID. And some of the problems we've had anecdotally is that it gets rid of it too fast. So we've given it, for example, to docs who are in a COVID ward running a COVID ward, and oddly enough, they come down with COVID. We give them the drops. They wake up the next morning. They go, the test must have been wrong. But no, your question, does healing with intentional direction matter? That's really the basis of your question. Yes. And the answer is, I don't know. And I have a series of studies designed to look into that. My guess and you need to understand I'm almost always wrong. My guess is that it won't matter. I don't think the intention of the healer, other than to offer healing, I suspect that the intention of the healer to offer healing is all that's needed, 
not with a specific outcome in mind. I think of healing as the healer, whether it's live or it's through a, a glass of water or it's through a piece of cotton. If it's live and you're treating a piece of cotton, the cotton now acts as a potential healer. But if the cotton is put on and I have condition A and the cotton is put on you and you have condition B, we'll both be affected. And I, as the healer who charged the cotton, don't even need to know who it's being applied to. And the same is true with water. If you're charging water, using charging loosely, if you're charging water, you're charging water. If now someone has leukemia, very different application than if someone has Crohn's disease. That someone has diverticulitis. That someone has a heart condition. We've used it clinically on all these things. The treater, the original treater doesn't know what it's for. Don't, don't even know the people are being treated by. So my guess, again, with the caveat, I'm probably wrong. <laughs> my guess is that healing is kind of analogous to offering white light. White light is all colors. If I want whatever this is, navy blue, I guess. If I want navy blue, navy blue is a subtraction from white light. Orange is a different subtraction from white light. Patient A needs orange. Patient B needs navy blue. Patient C needs green. Doesn't make any difference. I'm offering the spectrum. Take what you need. I think the healing is due to the stimulation by the healee, not the healer. Well, it seems uh, practically like you're practicing magic, uh, although you've yeah. done you know dozens and dozens of publishable scientific studies. It's it's really yeah. quite incredible that you're you're bringing something into the laboratory, uh, which I think we can only define as the X factor. In terms of results, I you know I, I I go, but I don't know that the X factor is really understood by me. <laughs> so I can bring it into the lab, I can get it to work, I can do the experiments, I can have, I have faith that if I treat a piece of cotton, that I've done it successfully, and so I am assuming that treated cotton is still treated cotton, um, and I can get reliable effects from it. Treated water is still treated water, but what what in heaven's name? What do they have in common? <laughs> you know, what, what, you know, and we blame this on grad, you know, Bernie, come on. What, what, what in heaven's name did you do to us? Because this seems to store healing intention without direction. This seems to store healing intention without direction. And this I've been able to mass produce. This I'm not so sure about yet. I haven't been able to mass produce it. But what, and what could be captured by, we've captured something by, Recording equipment. See, I just, I, it, I can't hold it together. How much of the work that you're doing, the charging of the water and the cotton, uh, is done specifically by you, and how much of it by people you've trained? Clinical, clinical applications is primarily done by people I've trained. The lab stuff is uh, overwhelmingly, I have a part in that. And I, I, it's really, it, it, it's nothing more than for convenience. 
because uh, I can do it any, you know, okay, good. I, I, I can fully charge this while I'm talking to you. I don't have to change my life. I don't have to go into a trance. I don't need to flop on the floor. Uh, and then I have fun doing stuff like sticking cotton in electron microscopes. I don't find anything. Uh, but uh, I, I, I have I have fun playing, so I, I make my own lab material. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, there are labs. We have experiments going on now in a bunch of universities. Um, there's one in particular that I they wanted me to be there, and I helped design the studies that we're doing. To and we're trying, we're actually looking for mechanism, but I can't make it just because of scheduling co complications. So I've sent somebody who I've trained, they're probably better than me anyway. You know, these are card-carrying healers, you know, who have a long, long, long clinical track record, longer than I'll ever have, longer than I'll ever want. Uh, and now they're using my method and getting, you know, I think either the same results or better results. Yeah, my 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 turf is, is doing it for the lab for the point of, you know, what am I going to understand? I, I don't really care about fixing the next mouse, and I really don't care about fixing the next person. I care about, can I make this storable and scalable? I do a lot of the, the stuff in the labs. And conversely, though, once I start an experiment, I never go into the lab. If I've got experiments going on in Providence, once I design them, and I sometimes may supply water that will be used in the experiment, but I don't go near the lab, I don't even call the lab up, I'm considered a contaminant. So we try, try to keep it, you know, pure, but I can supply them with cotton or water or recordings or things along those lines. So I gather with regard to your students that many of them are already experienced healers before they come to you for training. Oh, yeah. The ones that are taking my workshops and listening to my CDs and stuff. Again, the stuff is published. Anybody who wants to, to do it for themselves, I just earlier today I was uh, I'm corresponding with an anesthesiologist in Scotland, and she learned. I've never met her, but she's learned it only from the CDs that are drill and practice. Here's what you do. She didn't believe it. She's she's really a skeptic. And then you get all of these emails from her going, "Damn, you know, you know what just happened? But then I did it on a dog, and then I did it on a cat, and then I did, it, you know, what is this? Is this real? You know, it's that kind of stuff. I get quite a bit of that. And, and then you have the interesting phenomenon that uh, it seems to work at a distance, I presume, just as well as if you're right there with your hands near the uh, animal you're working on. Yeah, distance doesn't matter at all. This, this I'm, I'm, I'm very confident. And this just makes it more complicated to try to understand. It's another nail in my coffin, so to speak, because, you know, it, it, you, you think in terms of, well, nice and simple. Think in terms of energy healing. You know, probably a good chunk of the people out there use the term energy healing. It's not energy. If it was energy, it wouldn't not diminish with distance. It's not It's not energy. You know, you can say energy healing and it makes you feel comfortable, but it's pretty simple to unravel that. It's also pretty simple to demonstrate that healing doesn't depend on distance. So I get a cage of mice right in front of me. I get a cage of mice that are 2,000 miles away. The outcome is the same. Now, use any method of anything you know and try to explain how that works, and you'll end up flopping on the floor, or you'll be editing out what just happened because if you put it together, your head explodes. 
And in, in particular, if you're doing it 2,000 miles away, how is it that this cage, which is the cage that's supposed to get the healing, gets cured animals, and this cage right next to it doesn't at 2,000 miles? That's crazy talk. But almost everybody who's doing my method clinically, almost everybody does it from a distance. So they may have a client in China and a client in Argentina and a client in Germany and a client in New York City and a client, they don't care. And the stuff they report drives my skeptical head crazy. Well, it certainly suggests that uh, the principle behind this healing is very, very different from uh, anything associated with uh, mechanistic science. Yes, yes. And I get slightly, as much as I, you know, pursue this line and that line, I don't have any illusions at this point that we'll ever really be successful assuming mechanistic science. And I'm starting to lose patience with people who say, until you can do that, it's not interesting or it's not science. That's crazy talk. That's crazy talk. We don't know the mechanism of so many things. It's ridiculous. Yet we can look at something and we, we consider it amenable to scientific approach because it's something that even if we don't understand the mechanism, it's a reliable effect. Well, I have reliable effects all over the place. And so if you give me cancer cells, at least of a certain type, I can tell you which 68 genes are going to change. And they have to do with upregulation of apoptosis and downregulation of that and, you know, on and on and on. And you can fight it all you want, but it's still going to happen. Well, it's remarkable work that you're doing. Uh, it's potentially, I, I'm trying to find a really big word like earth-shaking or life-changing. If, if this could be uh, accepted by people around the world, I think uh, everything would be different. Oh, I, I completely agree. So take, take the COVID response right off, right off the bat. I mean, the findings are interesting. Being the skeptic that I am, I'm about to start a replication next week because I only have 300 people in one shot. And the hypothesis is so absurd, you know, that treated water <laughs> with nothing in it is going to take care of COVID. At what point do I say, anybody wants some? And who would want what kind of evidence to back it up? And I think the answer depends on who you are. If you're a COVID patient, you're going to say, shut up and give me the water. If you're a practicing scientist, you're going to say, shut up and do it again. I know with regard to COVID, there's been a lot of controversy because of, of the various claims that are made for different substances, some of uh, which have some research support, some of which have none at all. Yeah. And and my stuff, I have what I have, and the methods are the methods, and, you know, it's mapped out, and it's not, I don't have a secret formulation that's going on. Here's what's happened. It, it is published. I didn't publish COVID data yet. I just got the COVID data. I don't, I, to be honest, I don't know what to do with it, because I was dealing with it as a seriously interesting problem that I, you know, can do under control conditions. But when I looked at the outcome, I just went, oh, my stars. 
you know, what, what, what is, who wants it? You know, is this, cause I can mass produce this stuff. And the answer is, I think if I tried to distribute it in New York, I'm in New York. If I tried to distribute it in New York, I'd be arrested for practicing uh, medicine without a license. And I'm not claiming, I'm not making a medical claim here. I'm giving you an experimental outcome. Well, what if you were to take your data and show it to the Centers for Disease Control? What, what sort of an outcome would you expect from them? Hostility. I'd be amazed. The, 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 the hostility would be partly social because the culture would, the, the people have been trained to be conventional. You know, and if it doesn't follow A, B, and C, then it, it's no good. But I go back to like walking into a skeptic society. So I go to the skeptic society. I say I'm the only skeptic, and every, you know they're sitting like this. And then I show a bunch of data, and they just go, you know, the kind of you can see the jaws opening, like what, 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 what's going on here? But even when it's all over, even if I've done a couple hours of data, you know, and it's pretty clear, silence in the room. In the way that you, you you deal with a boatload of oncologists, silence in the room because the oncologist question is going to be, who's who? Wh what do I do next? And the skeptic society person, when they see, you know, I I don't think I'm overstating to say my data are overwhelming, particularly in the aggregate. And you look at this, and the skeptic, you know, what's the response. Well, this is going to be your question for the CDC. What's going to be the, what, what's the response in the group of skeptics? They're going to be, they start like this. And then at the end, they're like this. And at the end, they're like this. And then at the end, they don't know what to say. That was interesting. But as they're filtering out of the room, they come up to me individually. They look around and they go, that was great. And they run out of the room because I can't, you can't be talking to the enemy. And I don't think it would be too much of a statement to say, socially, culturally, if I went into a traditional medical place, and I've been to six medical schools doing these experiments, but they still, they don't know what to do at the end. They were doing it to show that I'm full of it. But after I've done it a couple of times, in you know so many different labs, they don't know what to do. What do you? I mean, what? What do you do? What would? There's no gain for someone from the CDC saying, "This this is worth looking into." There's no upside. In fact, there's a big risk that uh, any one of these professionals uh, would place their career in jeopardy if they start uh, in endorsing your work. Big time. Big time. And as you know, you know, I have a pretty good association with the SSE, the Society for Scientific Exploration, and our informal dictum is first get tenure because you're not going to get tenure looking at this stuff. The only people who can do this are people who are already tenured, and even then you're going to take a, a bunch of slaps to the head. I've had slaps to the head. Depends on who the dean is, who's the provost, who's the – you know, there are slaps that go on uh, allegedly from open-minded scientific researchers. If you're if you're scientific, you got to be open. 
you can't have the illusion that you understand everything. And so if you're going to follow the rules of data gathering and here are the data, you can get in trouble if you pay attention to it. Well, that would suggest, and I, I think you would probably agree with me if you put on your sociologist hat, that before this research can be accepted, society has to evolve in some ways. So society has to evolve. And, and my, my impression is that, that there's a boatload of people. I mean, first of all, there's an almost inexhaustible supply of people in pain. And no matter how many people I teach how to heal, and no matter how good they become, and let's assume they're many times better than I am, there's still an inexhaustible supply of people in pain. The lead is not going to come from the scientific community. They're ultra conservative. The lead is going to come from people in need. The scientific community doesn't have a need. They have a belief system to protect. The people who are sick have a need. And I think the leaders will be the people who are sick. So if I, if I get a scalable, storable healing technique that works on X, Y, and Z, and I take it to the CDC, I would not hold my breath because there are vested interests and there's a lot of money that would be threatened by hocus-pocus healing. But there's a boatload of people there who would take it in a heartbeat because, I, let me try. I don't know the mechanisms of action. Let me try. Let me see what happens when I try your water. Let me see what happens when I try your cotton. And if it's already scalable, you may get a geometric progression that happens pretty quick. And the scientists will be on the outside going, everyone's gone mad. Yeah, but they also got cured. <laughs> that would be kind of fun. Well, I do know that there are umpteen number of uh, people offering panaceas and miracle cures. And yeah. What distinguishes your work is decades of published scientific studies. I'm not aware yeah. of uh, any other similar treatment that has uh, that kind of backing behind it. Yeah, I don't know of any. I don't know of any. It's it's uh, it's just. It, it, and it really stems from my relentless curiosity. <laughs> what happened to me when my back got fixed? You know, I mean, you come full circle. What happened to me? What, what just happened? You know, and the answer is still, it's worth looking into. Well, you've been on this path now for, for many decades. You've been an incredible pioneer. You're trying to take it to a, another level of, of scalability so that what you've discovered can uh, be available to the masses. I'm certainly happy to do everything I can to let people know about your work, Bill. I think it's incredibly valuable uh, for people, and I know how long and how hard you've been at it. I appreciate that very much. Appreciate it. To, to the core of my being, I appreciate it. It's an, it's an, it's an interesting question. Well, I hope, I hope that we can continue this discussion over and over again because the, the message is so important. And uh, for now, though, I want to thank you very much from the bottom of my heart for being with me today. Thank you. It goes both ways. Fun time. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.